Well, good morning. As we study Colossians, I just want to come right out of the gate today with something I think you should know about Colossae. This is the city in which the church was meeting that the Apostle Paul was writing to, which gives us his letter, the book in our New Testament of Colossians. So as you want to open your Bibles up to there, I'm going to give you just some information I think is going to be important to you. Colossae, Uh, Just a few hundred years before Jesus, so think all the way back to Jesus, then go backwards a few hundred years, Colossae was a booming town. It was a leading city with a growing population, a growing economy. It was on a major trade route. It was hustle and bustle. Things were happening. It was the place to be. But by the time of Jesus, Colossae had shrunk. It turned out that some of the trade routes shifted. Some of the ways people were going moved a little bit, and Colossae just sort of got left in the dust. It felt like it, at least, I would imagine. As it shrunk, its population shrunk, the wealth of the people in that place shrunk. And I just want to point this out because Doesn't it feel like that tells the story of East Texas? If you've been around Marshall very long, you'll kind of know the history, the last 75 years or so, about Marshall and other towns in East Texas that tell a similar story, that maybe at one point there was a lot of hustle and bustle and wealth and growth and economy and things were going like crazy and it was awesome, but then things happen and things shift and it may feel like some places get the raw end of the deal while other places down the road seem to be growing in health and wealth and economy. Maybe places like Marshall or other surrounding towns aren't. Like maybe we missed the boat at some point, and I'm not here to talk about why that is or the reasons for it. What I want to just point that out is that that's part of Marshall's story. In other little towns in East Texas, it could be part of their story as well. But the kingdom of God is different. The kingdom of God works on different measurements. So when Paul wrote this letter to the Colossian Christians... They weren't the people that just anybody would pick off the map and go, oh, I'm going to write a letter to those people. But Paul saw something in them, and he had heard about them, and so that he wanted to encourage them and to tell them that they could make a huge impact on the kingdom of God regardless of their size or wealth, population, or importance they could still make it a huge impact on the kingdom of God. And I just want to bring this up to say that regardless of the size of Marshall or other little towns in our dear old East Texas, regardless of what the economy does in our area, regardless of how we're growing or not growing at different times as history proceeds, we can make a huge impact on the kingdom of God if we will do what Paul prescribed to the church at Colossae, which boiled all down to the main point of his letter is to keep the main thing the main thing. In other words, to put Jesus at the supreme place 
in our lives and church. There may be other things that fight for an important place in our lives, but Jesus must always have the supreme place. And that's the message of Colossians. And that's how we can make an impact uh, on the kingdom of God from little old, dear old East Texas, right? So before Paul gets into some colossal truth about who Jesus is, uh, he starts with this prayer uh, about the Colossians, a prayer for the Colossians. Uh, He says in verse three through eight, as you remember from last week, that he was thankful for the Colossian church, for the Christians there, because of what the gospel was doing. They're growing deep in them and then growing out from them. And then he gets in verses nine through 14, very specific about his prayers. He's always praying for these people. Now, what's he praying for? And it comes down to two prayer requests, two of Paul's greatest hopes for the church in Colossae uh, that could also be hopes for us here in East Texas. And so let's read this together. Colossians chapter 1, uh, verse 9 through 14. Paul writes this. He says, For this reason also, since the day we heard this, we haven't stopped praying for you. We're asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding so that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the saints' inheritance In the light, he has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the son he loves. In him, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This prayer, these which sounds like a lot. Paul's kind of praying a pastor's prayer here, right? There's a lot of words that you go, I need to really unpack that. But it really comes down to his two greatest hopes for the church in Colossae, which if we keep Jesus the main thing, we can expect these prayers to be answered right here in us and for us to make a huge impact on the kingdom of God. So first, we see that Paul prayed for believers to grow deep in their knowledge of Jesus, to grow deep in their knowledge of Jesus. Right off the bat in verse 9, he says, we're asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Paul's prayer was that all the decisions and the life direction for the Christians in Colossae would come from the overflow of, of their their knowledge of God's will, the overflow of their knowledge of God's will. Now, I've been doing ministry for just over 15 years, and uh, I've done a lot of ministry with college students, young adults, teenagers, uh, a lot of ministry with just folks here in East Texas. And what I can tell you from my time in ministry is that one of the biggest question marks people have about faith is what is God's will for my life? What is God's will? What am I supposed to do next? What job am I supposed to have? Where am I supposed to live? Who am I supposed to marry? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it turns out that people, while they desperately want to know God's will, are continually finding themselves frustrated because they're 
not getting to the point where they understand it. I'm not sure I've ever known anyone in 15 plus years that I would describe as having an overflow of the knowledge of God's will. Usually that's what people want me to have and they come meet with me as their pastor and they go, I'm really seeking for God's will. Can you tell me what I'm supposed to do? And I'm going, I, no, I, I can't. I can tell you what God's will is. And in fact, God wants us to know his will. God wants each and every one of you to have an overflow of the knowledge of his will that shapes every decision and the direction of your life. Here's why most people end up frustrated, though, as they seek God's will. The first way people seek God's will, and kind of the most natural way that you would want to find out what God's will for your life is, is what I'm going to call kind of the discovery method. Where if you can imagine taking a metal detector to the beach, you put that image in your head, I know that you may not think you're that person, right, if you show up to the beach, but imagine it for me. You got, you're showing up to the beach and you've got a metal detector, right, and you've got the little earphones on and you're going and you're searching. What do those people do as they search for valuable things? They just kind of wander around. They're just sort of wandering around on the beach, you know, waving that metal detector, just hoping that something happens. And then finally, they feel like, okay, here it is. I think this is it. And so they set it down and they start to dig and they're looking for something really valuable. And probably what it usually is is something like a, like a buried aluminum can or something, right? Like something really of no value, something that they just it wasn't what they thought it was going to be. Well, sometimes that happens in your life, right? You, you know you're trying to do what God wants. You're, you're trying, you're kind of wondering, going, okay, God, where are you in this? I want this to happen. I think, I wish this would happen. And you kind of, you get a lock on something. Maybe it's a person or a job or, or a, a financial situation. You go, wow, this is great. I'm going to start digging in right here. This is what I think God's will is. And when you uncover it or that situation unfolds itself, it just isn't working out like you thought it was going to work out. It's not what you hoped for. And so you get frustrated and you go, oh, I guess because that didn't work out the way I wanted it to work out, it must not be God's will. And that's how most people view God's will. And so they set back with the detector and wandering around for a little bit longer, hoping that they will find something better than what they've been through in the past. And you get frustrated, you get flustered, and eventually you just kind of put it down altogether and go, well, I guess whatever happens, happens. Maybe I'm never going to really find what God's will is for my life. That's the discovery mode, the discovery method for God's will. And can I tell you, that is not a biblical method for finding God's will. The biblical method for finding God's will is what I'll call the discernment method. The discernment method. Now, instead of a metal detector... You still got that image in your mind. I want you to set the metal detector down. Instead of a metal detector, you now have a treasure map. You've got a map in front of you that's guiding you to the most valuable thing in the world. And not only do you have this map that is, that is colorful and it's descriptive and, and it has definitions and, and you, you, you're going to know where you're going. It's got great detail. You also have with you the person who drew the map. And he's walking with you. 
And he's showing you. And so instead of a growing frustration, now what you have is a growing determination and a growing excitement as you go. I know I'm going in the right direction. I know that whatever is around the corner, whatever challenge lies ahead of me, I'm on the right path. I've got the map and I'm going with the map maker on my way. This is the discernment method of finding God's will. And it is faultless. It works every time because you and I do hold the treasure map. The map is God's word. It's right there. God loves to reveal his will to us. He has revealed everything we need to know. In fact, 2 Peter chapter 1 says, you already have everything you need for life and for godliness. It's right there. And it's in your hand, and not only is it in your hand detailed and descriptive, it also comes with the one who wrote it. God himself walking with you, revealing himself, helping you have understanding and confidence along the way. You see, God doesn't hide his will. Despite popular opinion, God doesn't put like three doors in front of you and go, okay, you got three options. You better pick the right one or you might miss out on something that I had for you. That's not the way God works. God doesn't do that. It never happens that way in the Bible. He loves to reveal his will and he gives us the map. So here's a good example, especially for you young adults in the room. A good example of how this practically plays out in your life is that you can spend, young adults, you can spend years of your young adult life, which, you know, sociologists tell us that being a young adult lasts longer and longer and longer, right? So, you know, here I am nearing 40, and it's like I still feel like a young adult, right? And so maybe you're 50. 50 is the new 30, I think, right? So young adults, you spend a lot of years searching for the one. You know what I'm talking about? the person, the one that God wants you to marry. You know, it's like the fulfillment of life is going to come through this. If I could just find the one, then I will be set. Except that, that's the discovery method of finding God's will. That's the metal detector method. If I could just find the one, if I could just wander into this social setting or that one or into that church or this one, if I could just wander around in my young adult years, maybe, just maybe, something will spark and I'll find the right person. God will bring them across my path and I'll just know, right? And so you get into a relationship with someone. You're like, I really like this person. You know, I think this is going really, really well. And then you start to see some of the things that make you, well, I'm not sure this is the right person. Then boom, maybe that one day that person hurts you. Maybe one day that person breaks up with you. Maybe one day any number of things could happen. And that relationship dissolves. It's like uncovering an aluminum can when you thought there was going to be something really valuable in there. And then you go, whoa, what happened? I thought maybe this was going to be it. And you just go, well, maybe that wasn't God's will. I'm just going to keep on wandering around until you get frustrated and then maybe stop. It's a discovery way. The discernment method is not that I'm living my young adult years hoping to find the one. The discernment method of discovering God's will is that I'm living my young adult years guided by the word of God to become the one for someone else. That's it. 
And so instead of frustration and, and just eventually growing to the point that you just want to give it up altogether, you go with God and he he reveals his will to you, you're operating then out of the overflow. You're getting an excitement and and, and just a courageous determination to live with him, doing what he wants you to do, not what you want to do. And you're becoming the one for someone else. There's joy in that. There's fulfillment in that. There's hope in that. And that's what God wants for you. That's the discernment method. And this is what Paul was praying for when he prayed for the Colossian church, that they would be able to live their lives, to make their decisions, to set the direction of their life out of the overflow of the knowledge of God's will. What would it look like for you to have an overflow of the knowledge of God's will? It all happens right here in the map, in the word of God. The Colossians were fairly new believers, I mean, maybe like two or three years, probably. Paul's in prison when he writes this letter. We know that when Paul went to Ephesus, which was kind of the, the city down the road that got all the good things when Colossae was kind of shrinking. So Paul ends up in Ephesus, and a church starts there, and he writes a letter to them. And one of the things that, that God shows us through that letter is that actually when Paul went to Ephesus, the entire region of Asia at that point, which is kind of modern-day Turkey right now, they all heard the gospel at that point. So that's probably when the gospel came to Colossae. And it came through a particular person that Colossians tells us about in verse 7 and 8. In Colossians 1, it's a guy named Epaphras. And as Paul was sharing with these brand-new believers, man, he says, I am thankful for people like Epaphras. So the journey to a deep knowledge of Jesus, the journey to an overflowing knowledge of God's will was never meant to be a lonely journey. It was never meant to be on your own. I mean, the metal detector guy on the beach, you've seen this guy, I think. If you haven't, you can picture him, but you know the metal detector guy has his headphones on and his head down, and he is by himself. It doesn't matter what else is happening on the beach. He is on a mission until he's not, but he's alone. That's not the way God intended our spiritual journey to be. God wanted us to be together. Treasure hunters, on the other hand, do you know how they search for treasure? A search party. Keyword party. This is good. This is enjoyable. This is fun to be together on the way to deepening our knowledge of Jesus, discovering with an overflow of the knowledge of God's will to live our lives the way God wants, not the way we want. So this is something we're supposed to be doing together. We need people on the journey with us as we discover this. Epaphras was that to the Colossians. Paul was so thankful for Epaphras, but also Paul would later write to Timothy, who by the way was a co-author of the book of Colossians with Paul. He would later write to Timothy in the second letter to Timothy in chapter 2, verse 2, this sentence, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, commit to faithful people who will be able to teach others also. This is the plan. If you have a desire to grow deep in your knowledge of Jesus, but you aren't sure where to start, it starts with having someone on that journey with you. 
Now, you know where to discover God's will. Now, it's in the word of God. It's there. But you're going to need some partners with you on the journey. Jesus would say to his disciples, Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission, right? All authority on heaven and earth has been given unto me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them all the things I have commanded you. See, God sends the message and the news of his will through people. And we need people around us. Epaphras was that to the Colossians. You maybe have been that to someone else or someone's been that to you. But if you're sitting here today and you're going, I'm on a spiritual journey and I need God to give me some guidance. I need to know more about the Bible. I need someone to help me. Can I just tell you, this is a congregation full of people who are ready to get in that journey with you. We call it connect groups. And right now today, you can, if you go and, hey, that's me, I need to learn more about Jesus. I need to know more about God's will. I feel like I don't know what God wants for my life, but I want to jump into a connect group. On the back of the next card, which is right in front of you here in the room today, you can fill that out. Or if on the, the later on, if you want to head right back to the iPads at the back of the room today, those are, those are there to help you find a connect group to jump into, to go past just a big group gathering so that we can be on this journey together toward the will of God, that our lives would be directed, our decisions would be governed by the will of God, an overflow. Now, the the word knowledge in this verse is, is a key word, the knowledge of the will of God, but it may not mean what you think it means. Here in Marshall especially, but all over East Texas, we understand education. It doesn't take long to realize, looking around you, that our school districts are the largest employers in our area. We have four colleges right here in Marshall. We get education. We know how it works. But can I tell you, a life of faith is not like getting an education. A life of faith is not that God is looking for people who can learn a bunch of information and so that they can pass a test. A life of faith is that God is looking for people who will yield themselves fully to him, that they would submit fully to him so that he can begin a transformative work in their lives, to make them into a new creation, totally different than before, not with a set of knowledge or a pedigree or a degree, a totally new creation. This is what a life of faith looks like. And the deeper that your roots go with Jesus, the more your life will change and the more you'll see life-changing happening around you. This is the reality of growing deep with Jesus. And then that leads to the second part of Paul's prayer. This is really where the rubber meets the road, is that believers, he was praying for believers to live a life pleasing to Jesus. To live a life pleasing to Jesus. Now, this is a good place for a reminder. It's impossible to live a good enough life to become pleasing to Jesus. It's impossible to live a good enough life to become pleasing to Jesus. You will hear me say something like that just about every week at Moberly because that is the opposite 
of the gospel that the Bible proclaims. We don't live the Jesus life for Jesus' love. We live the Jesus life from Jesus' love. He first showed us love by giving his self on the cross, becoming the sacrificial servant king. He conquered by being conquered. He gave up his life willingly so that he could pay the price for our sin. This is good, good news. It's something we didn't deserve. It's something we didn't earn, but he gave it to us lovingly. And so we don't live a life pleasing to Jesus for his love. We live it from the love that he's shown to us. That's why if you're following on the Bible app, the daily verse, uh, verse of the day, I didn't bring my phone up here, but uh, one of the things I do is I use the widgets on my iPhone. If you haven't done this or seen this, it's actually a pretty cool tool so that when I unlock my phone for the first time every day, the top thing, the first thing I see before I look at the weather, before I see my notifications, I just kind of organized my phone home screen to where the Bible app widget of the verse of the day is right there at the top. It's a really cool tool. Did you see the verse of the day today? It fits in right here. It's 1 John 2, 6. Chapter 2, verse 6, it says, Whoever claims to live in Jesus must live as Jesus did. Whoever claims to live in Jesus must live as Jesus did. And as we do that, Paul says three specific things will happen. Right? His two greatest hopes for the church The first, that the believers would grow deep in their knowledge of Jesus. The second, that believers would live a life pleasing to Jesus. Now he gets specific and he says, these three things will happen as you live this kind of life. In verse 10, the second half, he says that you will be bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God. Growing in the knowledge of God. So a life pleasing to God is a life that grows both deep and wide. Back in verse 6, Paul says that this is exactly what the gospel does. If you look back in your text to verse 6, you'll see these same two words, that the gospel is bearing fruit and growing all over the world. And so, if Jesus holds the supreme place in your life, this will be true of you as well, that you will be bearing spiritual fruit Things will be happening through your life that God is designing and doing, things that you could not do in and of yourself to help bless other people, bearing fruit that you would be growing in knowledge. This is what Jesus told his disciples in John chapter 15, verses 4 and 5. He says, remain in me and I in you. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit. So when you and I grow in our devotion to Jesus, our lives explode with evidence of Jesus so that other people can experience Jesus through us. This is part of a life 
pleasing to Jesus. And as God works this in your life, as your life is living from the love of Jesus, a life pleasing to him, God also strengthens you for the life he calls you to. This is what it says in verse 11. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Now check this out. A life pleasing to Jesus isn't marked by trying. It's marked by trusting. A life pleasing to Jesus isn't marked by trying. It's marked by trusting. The verb is passive, meaning that you can't make strength happen on your own. Strength is something that comes from God, and God strengthens you according to his power, with his power, according to his might. Not according to your ability, not according to your effort. Like, well, if I'll just put in the effort, God will meet me halfway. Not according to your potential, that, oh, I'm a pretty talented person, so God's going to strengthen me more than another person. Not it at all. Every single believer. Not according to your ability, your effort or your potential. God strengthens us all by his power according to his might. That's where he leads us so that we can have great endurance, which by the way, that word endurance literally means surviving hard times, surviving hard times, and so that we can have patience, which This is not too much of a stretch either, and you probably resonate with this. That word literally means surviving hard people. You got any hard people in your life? (laughs) You had any hard times in your life? If you don't have one, you probably have the other, but most of us have both. And what Jesus is saying through the Apostle Paul is that a life pleasing to him is a life that allows God to strengthen you not according to anything who you are or what you've done, but according to his glorious might so that you can survive the hard team, hard times, so that you can survive the hard people. That covers just about everything, right? We need God's strength. You know, the news has been like on overdrive covering the death of Queen Elizabeth. So I don't know, I've been thinking about England a little bit more and uh, this last couple weeks. And what I just found so interesting was how long Queen Elizabeth was, was in power as, uh, as the monarch in England. And under her reign was this incredible statesman and war hero by the name of Sir Winston Churchill. I don't know if you guys have been aware of Sir Winston Churchill and his life and story, but he's well known for giving these kind of like bulldogish speeches and just really getting people fired up. And, and he did that. In fact, at, toward the end of his career, uh, years ago, he was invited back to uh, his child school to give a speech to a bunch of young men and and in this speech where he talks about the hard times England was going through he's well known for boiling it all down in a short speech to one simple statement where he said never give in never give in never 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 now a Churchill speech can get you fired up right It can get you motivated to tackle whatever issue you're facing in your life. But God isn't calling you to grow in determination. God is calling you to grow in dependence. 
Not trying, but trusting. Not building your own strength, but allowing him to strengthen you according to his glorious might. That's why at our church, one of the values we have, like if you go to our website and you go, I want to know what this church is about, one of the values of Moberly Baptist Church is what we call personal transformation. And the definition of personal transformation on our website is this, growing in absolute dependence on God. Growing in absolute dependence on God every day. That's who we are. And that's who we strive to be. Growing in dependence, not just determination. And as God works in you to bear fruit and to strengthen you, then we see the third thing about a life pleasing to Jesus is what comes out of us. Verse 12 says, joyfully giving thanks to the Father. A life pleasing to God is marked by gratitude. Gratitude. I'm so thankful the song Joel led for us just a few minutes ago about that. A life that's pleasing to Jesus is marked by gratitude. Now, I read this recently, this quote. It says, the same part of your brain that lights up when you give thanks is the same part that's activated when you connect deeply in intimate conversation. Same part of your brain that lights up when you give thanks is the same part that's activated when you connect deeply in an intimate conversation. So maybe the reason you don't feel close to God is because you haven't been grateful for what he's done. You haven't practiced gratitude. This is a great place to start because a worthy walk is marked by a grateful heart. Usually if you're not being practicing gratitude, do you know what you become? You become grumpy. <laughs> but a life pleasing to Jesus is, is marked by a heart of gratitude, practicing gratitude. Uh, but gratitude, I gotta give it to you, and same for me, it would be a lot easier if everything just worked out for us in life, right? Gratitude would be so much easier if everything went our way. You see the posts on social media from people who have it all together, right? Like, you know, the Instagram influencers and even the people in your community who just like their family always looks perfect and everything's just going really well for them. It doesn't seem like they ever have any low points or downsides. And that's the front you see on social media. And you might be wondering, because you don't feel that that's true in your life, where is God? Why hasn't God blessed us in that way? Hashtag blessed, right? Why hasn't God provided for me? Why hasn't God met me in my need? Why hasn't God elevated us in this way? Does God truly care about me? Is God even there? These might be real questions you have in your heart. And I just want to come to you and tell you that that's okay. That's normal. God can handle those kind of questions. The Colossians might have been in the same place. I mean, you remember their story. Their town was shrinking. Jobs were fewer and farther between. The influx of money had just about dried up where they were, and it had shifted down the road. Everything else, every other town seemed to be getting all the good stuff. They seemed to be missing out. But even in a situation like that, Paul gives these Colossian Christians three reasons why they can give thanks right where they were. And the same are true for you today if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. 
The first is from verse 12. If you're following along, the second half of verse 12, it says that we have an inheritance, that we share in an inheritance with the saints. Now, Paul's a little vague about what exactly this inheritance is. I don't know if you've ever been through a probate process with a family member, but sometimes things get a little vague or messy. Well, we do get a hint because Paul uses the same word for inheritance that the Old Testament used for the promised land that God had given to the Israelite people. You know the story of the Old Testament? They came out of Egypt and slavery and God had given this great promise about this land flowing with milk and honey and, and God was going to bring them to it and they ended up wandering around in the desert and for 40 years partly because of their disobedience uh, and then eventually God brought the Israelites into the promised land but then later on they actually kind of experienced some hurts and and uh, hang-ups that had them walking away from God again. And this, but a lot of their life for the Israelites was centered around this promised land. Now, much of it, their experience with the promised land was tainted and twisted by sin. That describes our current world. That we see what could be from creation, how God intended things to be, we understand what it could be or should be like, but everything about us, our lives are twisted and tainted by sin. And what God is saying is that if you would just lift up your eyes and look farther into the future, maybe it's today, maybe it's 100 years from now, maybe it's 1,000 years from now, we don't know, but God will finish what he started. He's gonna come back around the way he intended things to be, though it's been tainted and twisted by sin. Sin, he's going to restore it. He's going to renew it. He's going to bring everything back to the way it was supposed to be. He's going to conquer evil once and for all. He's going to redeem all things in what he calls a new heaven and a new earth. And so when we think about what is an inheritance, let me just tell you that as a Christian, if you think that you're just going to go to heaven when you die, that's only part of the picture. That's only part of it. Actually, what God's plan is, is to bring heaven to earth, to create a new earth uh, where you and I will live in complete enjoyment of God and one another and all the best things about the earth we live on. It'll all be restored and redeemed. We won't have to worry about our relationships or our lives or our people or things tainted and twisted by sin. It'll all be conquered and the world will be the way God intended it to be from the beginning. This is our future. That is the inheritance that is promised to us. Romans chapter 8, verse 16 and 17 says, The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children, also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. So Christian, you feel far from God today? You can practice closeness with God simply by being grateful for the inheritance that's coming. Thank God that my life will one day not be twisted and tainted by sin. 
Whatever you're going through right now, there's a better future. Second thing he says to be thankful for, this is our, is our rescue. In verse 13, our rescue. Did you notice what he says here about rescuing us out of the domain of darkness? In contrast that with the inheritance with the saints, the inheritance of light. Verse 13, it's great. Uh, we've been rescued out of darkness into light, meaning we, through our faith in Christ, have been, as Psalm 40 says, the psalmist writes, he rescued me from the desolate pit. He rescued me from the desolate So for the believer in Jesus, God brought you from dark to light. He brought you from drowning to thriving. He brought you from death to life. God brought you from anxiety to peace, from despair to hope, from loneliness to community. God rescued you. And you can rest in this reality, that he rescued you and he keeps you, meaning he won't throw you back, You can't slip back into that darkness. Psalm 40 goes on to say, not only did he pull you from the pit, but he set my feet upon a rock. So have you thanked God lately for your salvation, your rescue? You practice that, you're gonna be close to God. The last thing he says to be thankful for is redemption. In him, verse 14, in him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. Jesus taught that those who live in sin are slaves to sin. But this word redemption literally means to be bought back. It's the picture of a slave whose freedom is purchased. So for the believer in Jesus, you used to be owned and controlled by sin. But Jesus paid for your freedom, your redemption, by giving you the forgiveness of sin through his death on the cross. So if you're a Christian feeling like you've drifted away from God, like, I don't know how I could say my life is pleasing to God right now. I feel so far from him. Can I just say that the call to a life pleasing to God is not a to-do list? That's how most of us think, right? Once we drift far away from God, man, I've got so many things to do to get back closer to him. But the call to come back to a life pleasing to God, it's not a to-do list. It's just a reality check. Just a reality check. The reality of the gospel. That your salvation in Jesus is a gift you received, not because you became worthy, but because you recognized that you would never be worthy and you knew you needed a savior. It's like Romans chapter five, verse eight says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So this reality will grow gratitude in you. And gratitude to the Father will grow you deep in Jesus. And God will bear fruit through your life and strengthen you for whatever comes. And when we do this together, we can make a huge impact on the kingdom of God right here in little old East Texas. This is the vision. This is the hope. This is the dream. Not only for the church in Colossians, but for 
us as well. But it all starts with the gift of salvation. It's a gift of grace. It's received by faith. So if you've not yet placed your faith in Jesus for salvation, make today the day. Would you join me in prayer? God, we thank you for the good future you have for us. The redemption of all things. The new creation that will be. We thank you for our rescue that you pulled us out of the pit of sin and you set our feet on a rock, the rock that is Jesus. God, we thank you for our redemption that you bought and paid for us through Jesus' death on the cross. God, we want to be pleasing to you, but we start just by saying thank you. Thank you, Jesus. God, would you walk with us, revealing your will to us in a way that we overflow with the knowledge of who you are and what your desires for us are. You're good. We see your goodness just written all over what we're studying in Colossians. So God, would you align our hearts with what we're reading in the scriptures? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.